Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 20. This week we'll be starting in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, and we'll finish through 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Now, if you remember, while 1 Chronicles was concerned with David in the temple, 2 Chronicles picks up with Solomon's reign and the kings of the south that will come after him. There are no kings of the north mentioned at length because the line of David does not descend from them. That's not the focus. The promised line of David from which the Messiah would come is the focus in Second Chronicles. So hopefully it'll be a little easier to follow the storyline because we're just talking about the kings of the south in Second Chronicles. After David's death, Solomon begins to rule over the nation at the age of 20. Chapter 1 of 2 Chronicles tells us that he is well aware of his need for divine guidance in leading the nation, so he travels to Gibeon, the site where the tabernacle is, and the site where the priests were still offering sacrifices because the temple had not been built yet. And so God responds to Solomon's desire for guidance and revealed himself to Solomon, giving him whatever he desires. And like we noted back in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon chooses wisdom to rule over the people. And because of his unselfish request, God also chooses to bless him with wealth and success and honor more than any other king before or after him. Things fell into place very quickly for Solomon's kingdom as the last part of chapter 1 tells us. And we move into chapter 2, where Solomon begins to set his efforts upon building the temple. He sets up a labor force and enters into negotiations with King Hiram of Tyre as David, his father, had done. 2 Kings 5.1 tells us that King Hiram and David were good friends, so it seems appropriate that Solomon would go to Hiram for help, and Hiram would readily agree. Solomon's letter that he sent to Hiram is included in the text. It's probably offset in your Bibles like a large quotation. And Solomon's letter reveals that he had a sincere desire to glorify God. He did not see the temple as a duty to fulfill from his father David. So we see the humility of Solomon in this letter, like his father David. Solomon says in verse 5, This must be a magnificent temple, because our God is greater than all other gods. But who can really build him a worthy home? Not even the highest heaven can contain him. So who am I to consider building? a temple for him, except as a place to burn sacrifices. So Hiram sends Solomon his craftsmen that have ability to work with all kinds of metals, as well as his master craftsman, a man named Hiram Abi. Now don't miss this in Hiram's reply to Solomon. Hiram's reply shows that in Solomon's day, Israel was drawing the Gentile nations to Yahweh. She was doing what she was destined to do from the very beginning, to be a light to the Gentiles, a light that would cause other nations around her to seek out the God she served. The nations of the world looked to Israel, and of course this is something that will happen on a global scale when Jesus sits on the throne during the Millennial Kingdom. As we move right into chapter 3, it tells us that the temple construction begins on Mount Moriah. Now, that mountain might sound familiar to you because that's the same mountain where Abraham was prepared to offer his son Isaac all the way back in Genesis chapter 22. The glory of the temple was not in its size, but in its quality and appearance. In the ancient Near East, a god's house, a temple, represented that particular god, so they would be decorated with symbols and things that were particular to that god. So in the temple of the one true god, nothing would be second rate. Even the nails were gold nails, weighing in at 20 ounces each. In the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant would be placed, two large cherubim were constructed that were twice the size of a person, designed to cover the Ark completely. There were also two large freestanding pillars that stood in the front of the temple, designed to call attention to God's faithfulness and strength in establishing Israel. 
As you move down into chapter 4, you begin to read about the temple furnishings. Now remember, everything is bigger than life in the temple. For example, the bronze altar is now 30 feet square and almost 15 feet high, so stairs are needed to walk up to it when the priests were to sacrifice, whereas the bronze altar in the tabernacle is quite smaller, and for practical reasons as well, because if it were a huge altar like the temple, can you imagine having to carry that thing throughout the wilderness? The ten tables that are referenced in this chapter refer to the one table of showbread that the tabernacle would have had. The laver here is called a sea that feeds other basins. Anyway, you get the picture that in the temple, everything is carried to the next level. Now, chapters 5, 6, and 7 begins the dedication ceremonies of the temple. The installation of the ark is the first part of the ceremony. This is the most solemn act of all. It's the transfer of the ark of the covenant from its place in David's tabernacle to its new home in the temple. And we've mentioned this before, but the ark of the covenant was the only piece of furniture that was not remade for the temple. This is the original ark that was crafted almost 500 years ago under the leadership of Moses when God instructed him to construct it for the tabernacle. And as the ark is placed in the Holy of Holies, sacrifices are continued to take place so that many, so many that they can't be counted. The Levitical choir starts to sing praises to God. Trumpeters and other musicians are singing to the Lord. Then the Shekinah glory of the Lord descended like a thick cloud and filled the temple of the Lord. Wow. Can you imagine what that sight must have looked like? Can you imagine being there and watching that? What a moment. The second part of the dedication ceremony is Solomon's address to the people. Solomon repeated some of the promises in the Davidic covenant publicly. He reminds them that up until now, the Lord had refused to authorize the temple because his people had been wanderers. Now, however, peace prevailed, and Jerusalem had become the permanent place for both the palace and the temple. And so the third part of the dedication ceremony was Solomon's prayer. Solomon's prayer explained the significance of God's coming to indwell his temple. God was present among his people and would hear their prayers when they called out to him in obedience. In the prayer, Solomon specified seven concrete situations in which he asked the Lord to intervene and answer to prayer. These seven situations are found in verses 22 to verse 39. I'm not going to list them for you, but see if you might be able to find them in the text as you read through. The fourth part of the dedication ceremony was the celebration of the people. The celebration consists of a seven-day dedication of the bronze altar with numerous sacrifices, followed by another seven-day celebration of the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was now possible for Israel to fulfill the purpose for which God had created her as never before in her history. The temple was the key to this, and that's why the temple was so important to Israel. That's why it's so important to the chronicle here in Second Chronicles. The the remaining portion of chapter 7 records an incident sometime after the temple had been completed. God appeared to Solomon a second time with the assurance that he had heard Solomon's prayer, but also wanted to remind him of the consequences if the people were not faithful. As you move into chapters 8 and 9, we find descriptions of Solomon's extreme wealth his accomplishments, his many successes. And midway through Solomon's reign, he took a great interest in international affairs, as evidenced by much of his political success. He was also faithful in his religious pursuits, being careful to follow and obey all the guidelines for sacrifice and worship. And of course, in addition to political and religious success, he also had economic success. The Queen of Sheba pays him a visit 
as well to see if he was as wise as they said he was. And she brought him gifts, and other Gentile nations also contributed to Solomon's wealth. Now the chronicler omitted any reference to Solomon's apostasy, but this was not designed to whitewash his record. The book of Kings was easily available to the people so they could find out these matters if they chose to. But the chronicler chose to present only those aspects of Solomon's career in which he provided a positive example of trust and obedience. And I would say the same is true for many men of God today. A lot of times we just see the positive example that they provide for us, but we all know that they have a sin nature just like us. So we move into chapter 10. After Solomon's reign ended, the kingdom gets divided into the kingdom of the north, ten tribes, and the kingdom of the south, two tribes. Remember, Chronicles only considered the southern kingdom to be the true Israel, so no mention is made of the northern tribes except for the fact that they rebelled against Rehoboam. Rehoboam, not listening to the wise counsel, decided to tax the people to a greater extent than his father Solomon had done. Because of this, these ten northern tribes rebel. They say, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And they find a new leader and the other Boam brother, and his name is Jeroboam. Now, chapter 11, we find is unique to Chronicles. It contains an evaluation of both the northern and southern kingdoms. Israel, the north, set up a humanly devised form of worship. This new religion resulted in many of the faithful followers of Yahweh picking up and moving from the northern tribes to the southern tribes so they could continue to worship God as he had specified. Therefore, to the chronicler, the tribe of Judah forms the true Israel. However, Rehoboam's desire to follow the Lord does not last long. Chapter 12 tells us that once he was firmly established, then he abandoned the law of the Lord. Do you notice that cause-effect statement? Only after he was firmly established did he then start thinking about forsaking God. There's a lesson here in this statement. Rehoboam believed the lie that he was able to accomplish the fortification of the nation, that he was able to gather a great army, that he was able to accomplish many things. Do you hear the pride in those words? Once a man thinks that he has accomplished something on his own, he begins to think that he is something. And eventually he begins to believe the lie that he doesn't need God and he can take care of his own self. This is why it's extremely, extremely healthy for us to constantly remind ourselves that we cannot do anything on our own. It's only because of God's grace that we are able to do what we do. We need to be in utter dependence on him and not fall into Rehoboam's trap of trying to be successfully independent from God. Because of Rehoboam's actions, judgment comes by way of Egypt in chapter 12. And Rehoboam, we're told, rules for 17 years, and then his son Abijai takes over when he dies. Abijai's reign lasted for only three short years, and chapter 13 tells us that his major project was his attempt to bring the northern tribes back under the control of the southern kingdom, because remember, they had rebelled. But he was going to do this by force. So Jeroboam from the north did not like what Abijai was doing. And as a result, the two kingdoms go to war, but God gives Judah, the southern kingdom, the victory. And Judah is also able to take back some territory from the north, including Bethel. Now, chapter 14 tells us that when Abijah dies, his son Asa took over the throne. Chronicles gives much more attention to King Asa than the book of Kings did. The reason being is that Asa's experiences illustrate the points that the chronicler wanted to drive home to his readers. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings punishment. That's a current and a continuing theme that you find through Chronicles. In chapters 14 and 15, we see Asa obeying God, and he's blessed for it. And in chapter 16, he doesn't, and he's disciplined for it. 
In chapter 14, Asa uses the time of peace to purge idolatry that had crept into the land. He also fortified his defenses against future attacks for the north, again doing good things. Chapter 15, he's inspired to start a revival in the land based upon the message from the prophet Azariah. He uh, rededicates the temple. He rededicates himself and the people to the Mosaic law, executing those who refuse to submit to covenant. He even removes his own grandmother from power because of her idolatrous ways. So he was doing good things, chapters 14 and 15. But then you get into chapter 16, we see that Asa's heart was right and that he consistently showed love to God. However, like David, his obedience lapsed. He trusted in foreign alliances rather than putting his full trust in God. And verse 9 of chapter 16 is a very powerful verse. Very powerful verse. Listen to what it says. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now, what a powerful verse and a powerful reminder that God is looking to help those who are fully committed to him. When Asa is confronted with his sin, he gets angry and he starts oppressing the people and even throws the prophet into prison. Even later on in his reign, after contracting a serious foot disease, Asa does not go to the Lord for help, but instead goes to his doctors for help. Asa dies two years later. Now you get into chapters 17 through 20, and those chapters cover the reign of Jehoshaphat. And you will find a lot of similarities between Jehoshaphat and Asa. Jehoshaphat followed up on his father's strategy of building defensive posts throughout the land, particularly along the north. He emulated the heart for God that Asa had shown in his early years. One of Jehoshaphat's concerns was that the law be taught throughout his kingdom. That was a good concern. So he sent out itinerant teachers to do that very thing. So the surrounding nations lost their appetite for aggression against Judah, and they even sent gifts with obvious intent of establishing good relations with Israel on account of what Jehoshaphat did. However, the first sign of weakness of Jehoshaphat's character was in his unwise alliance with King Ahab of the northern tribes. Remember him? I'm sure you do. In chapter 18, the two kings team up to help Ahab take home, or take back, excuse me, some territory he had lost to the Armenians. Rashly ignoring God's words against the battle, Ahab is mortally wounded and later dies. Jehoshaphat escapes the battle and is able to return to Jerusalem, where the prophet Jehu is waiting to rebuke him for allying himself with Ahab. As you move down to chapter 19, Severely reprimanded for his actions, Jehoshaphat commenced a program of reformation and revival. He set up a network of judges whom he instructed to adjudicate cases with fairness and integrity. For more difficult cases, a supreme court of sorts you know, was set up in Jerusalem. Not to forget, the standard by which these judges judged was the covenant law. And chapter 20 tells us that sometime later in Jehoshaphat's reign, Moab and Ammon had agreed to join forces to go up against Judah. And Jehoshaphat offers a public prayer in which he called upon God to give the people success in battle. In a very public setting, it says. And in response to this prayer, the Spirit of God came upon Jehaziel, who was a spokesman for God. And he reminded the assembly that the battle was not theirs, but the Lord's. They would have... Nothing to do but sit back and watch God go to work on their behalf. The Lord had brought the people of Edom into the mix with Moab and Ammon, and the result of this was infighting between these two camps. And all Judah needed to do at the end was to gather the spoils of war after the enemy already destroyed itself. 
You know, the life of Jehoshaphat is generally favorable. He walked in the godly paths of his father, except for his failure to remove all the high places. King Jehoram comes to the throne next in chapter 21, and he is the first king of the Davidic line that the chronicler has nothing positive to say about. Even though he was crowned as king, he killed all his brothers for fear that they might take away the kingdom from him. Jehoram reigned for eight years of idolatry, marrying King Ahab's daughter, and by this union, bringing much of the paganism of the northern kingdoms into Judah. It is significant that the prophet God sent to announce judgment on Jehoram was in fact Elijah. And Elijah's ministry was to condemn Baalism in Israel, the northern part. But God sent him to Jehoram because Jehoram shared the same guilt as the kings of Ahab's house. This is the only recorded incident we have of a prophet from the northern kingdom rebuking a king from the southern kingdom. Now, as Ahaziah comes to the throne next in chapter 22, he dies one year later, and his mother seizes the throne, ruling Judah for six years. And so the subject of chapter 22 is not so much Jehoram, Ahaziah, and Athaliah, mother, but rather the house of Ahab, and the threat it poses to the house of Judah. So God raised up Jehu while Jehoram was still ruling in the north, and Ahaziah was ruling in the south to destroy the dynasty of Ahab. You see, at this point in time, Ahab's dynasty was affecting both kingdoms, and the evil from both needed to be purged, and so God raised up Jehu to do this. Ahaziah's death after one year on the throne causes his mother to usurp the throne and rule for six years. So Athaliah was ruling over Judah. She was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and she was married to King Jehoram in the north. What a combination here. The real heir to the throne in Judah was a young boy who was not old enough to rule, so he was hid away with the help of Jehoiada the priest. His name was Joash. The narrative continues in chapter 23 as Jehoiada the priest decided it was time to place the young king Joash on the throne. Strategically planning the inauguration of the new king, Athaliah was lured into a trap, and Joash took the throne with the whole nation celebrating it. Athaliah, after realizing what had happened, tries to escape, but she is put to death before she could leave. Jehoiada the priest led the people in a covenant renewal ceremony, and he destroyed the Baal objects and reestablished the worship of the Lord according to the law. He was a good, wise counselor for young Joash. Now, in chapter 24, Joash undertakes a series of reforms to restore Judah back to the glorious years of Jehoshaphat. He repaired the temple, which had fallen into ruin. It was funded by the offering from the people, and there was enough money left over to purchase all the implements necessary for temple worship. However, after Jehoiada's death, and by the way, Jehoiada lived to be 130 years old. After Jehoiada's death, it seems that Joash, Joash's reforms are reversed as the leaders of Judah go back to worshiping false gods. God sent the prophet Zechariah to bring these leaders back to worshiping the one true God, but they would not heed his word. Consequently, Joash does not take a stand against these leaders, but he colludes with them and orders that Zechariah be stoned to death. Now, if you didn't catch this in your reading, Zechariah, this prophet, was the son of Jehoiada. Remember the one that lived to be 130? That same Jehoiada that had helped Joash come to the throne at such a young age, protect him, guide him in doing what was right. So how does Joash repay Jehoiada for his ministry to him? By having his son, Zechariah, stoned to death. (laughs) As Zechariah is being martyred, he calls out to the Lord and asks him to avenge his death. The Lord hears his prayer. 
And in the very next section of chapter 24, the Aramean army invades Judah and Jerusalem and kills all the leaders of the nation. But Joash was only severely wounded. The text says that his own officials would later finish the job of killing him because he had killed the son of Jehoiada. Now, Joash's son, Amaziah, comes to rule the throne in chapter 25. His first official act was to execute those who had killed his father. But the text notes carefully that he does not kill their children, just the men who committed the crime. This is in accordance with what the Mosaic Law says. Then he organized a great military force, including 100,000 mercenaries from the northern kingdom. But then a prophet rebukes him for seeking help from foreign troops rather than trusting in God for help. And because he sends the mercenaries away at a great cost to himself, Amaziah led a successful campaign against the perennial enemy of Judah, the nation of Edom. But Amaziah's reign would actually end in failure because he did not continue to put his trust in God. Idolatry was a very, very big deal to God. Always has been, always will. It's, in fact, the very first commandment. And it's something that's all over the pages of the Old Testament, as well as the New. Many of these Old Testament characters were blind to their idolatrous ways, and this is a great lesson for us today because the only way we can stop from falling into that same trap is to remember that we must strive to continue to put our trust in God every day. It's not a one-time event, but a lifelong pursuit of loyalty to God. Putting our trust in anything else but God will only bring us pain, frustration, and heartache, let alone become separated from our need of fellowship with God. Chapter 26, King Uzziah comes to the throne, and he is given more treatment in this text than he did in 2 Kings 15 narrative. It seems that the chronicler includes much more material regarding the king's leprosy to demonstrate the leprosy was a result of the king's pride and presumption. And the very first part of Uzziah's reign was one where he sought after God. And as long as he did this, the text says his reign would prosper. His reign, however, takes a turn for the worse when he usurps the role of priest and offering of incense. He dares to challenge God's will, something that will always end in failure. The result of his rebellion was leprosy for the rest of his life. He was cut off, listen, he was cut off from the house of the Lord, meaning because of his uncleanness, so he could not even enter the temple of the Lord for the remainder of his life. That's a punishment. In chapter 27, Jotham takes the throne as a good king. And note that verse 6 says this, King Jotham became powerful because he was careful to live in obedience to the Lord his God. This is like a theme verse for all the kings of Judah. If they obeyed the Lord, then he would bless them. If they did not obey, then curses would come. And even though the people under Jotham's rule continued in their evil ways, Jotham did what was right and obeyed the Lord. As we move into the last chapter we'll talk about for the podcast for today, chapter 28, we find that Ahaz comes to the throne. And with him, the chronicler introduces the prospect of captivity. Why does Israel go into captivity? Ahaz's behavior helps explain the reason, as three major events from his life are included in this chapter. His idolatry, his appeal to Assyria for help, and third, his sacrifice to foreign gods. Even though he failed to obey God as the other kings, there is no mention of him repenting when God chastened him. You see, some of these kings, when God chastened them toward the end of their life, they repented at the end. Well, there's no note of that about Ahaz. Instead, he hardened his heart even more. Therefore, it seems quite apparent that the reason for Judah's exile was the hardness of the heart that Isaiah, excuse me, that Ahaz exemplified. 
Now that's all for the re- that's all the time we have for the reading for this week. Next week we'll pick up in chapter 29 with Hezekiah. And next week, guess what? We'll finish up 2 Chronicles. We'll finish up this Kings of the North and Kings of the South and the back and forth and the narrative. And we'll find our way going into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Email any questions you have to BibleReadingLMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.